Thank you, ladies. Please turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 5. We're looking at verses 33 through 39 together this morning. Hope you're excited about our, our summer that's beginning here. Encourage you uh, to come out this Wednesday, uh, Fellowship at the Farm. The bulletin kind of has some more information about that, but that's just a great time for us as a church to spend together, fellowshipping, fellowshipping, fel- spending time together. Uh, it's a great. Uh, Kevin Souter will be sharing a devotional with us, and so I encourage you to come back for that this Wednesday. The directions to the farmhouse are, are in your bulletin. Please uh, stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together. Luke chapter 5. Last week, we saw Jesus eating with the tax collector Levi, and Luke uh, brings this next story, kind of a, same, a similar theme, a theme regarding uh, eating. Verse 33, and they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and and then they will fast in those days. Verse 36, he also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking the old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. You may be seated. May God encourage us this morning as we read and meditate and contemplate and apply his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time of worship this morning. We thank you for the one upon whom our worship is focused We thank you for Jesus Christ, who is the mediator between ourselves and you, our Heavenly Father. Our desire this morning is you. We pray that you would cause those things in our lives that we've put up as idols to be dissolved away, that our heart would begin to hate those things that draw us away from you. Pray that you'd sustain us by the power of your Holy Spirit, and we pray this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. It was perhaps some 3,000 years ago that the man we know as Homer compiled the epic poem, The Odyssey. The Odyssey is the story of a man, Odysseus, and his journey from distant lands to home. And as the story of the Odyssey and Odysseus's journey home begins, the poet begins with these words, sing in me and through me tell the story of that man Odysseus, skilled in all the ways of contending, the wanderer who was harried for years on end, who saw the townlands and learned the minds of many distant men and who weathered many bitter nights and days in his deep heart at sea who fought to save his life and the life of his companions to bring his shipmates home. 
of these adventures. Tell us in our time, lift the great song again, as we begin when all the rest had died in battle or at sea, or had long ago returned, while Odysseus, he alone, still hungered for home and wife. The story of the Odyssey is the story of Odysseus' longing for home and his desire to, to reach his home and his wife and his family again. And perhaps one of the reasons that the Odyssey has been such a compelling story for 3,000 years is that it has spoken to our longings, our needs as human beings to achieve home and rest. The Odyssey speaks to that longing within us that is, a, I believe, a God-given ability to desire things. And furthermore, I believe that the ultimate expression of desire, the ultimate longing that a person can have, the ultimate longing that a human being can have, is a longing for God. In fact, I would suggest to you this morning that all the other things in our life that we can long for, all the other people that we can long for, the, the home that we long for here on earth, is a shadow, are all shadows of that ultimate longing that a person can experience for God. Paul expresses the ultimate longing in Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, he's talking about the, the possibility of his departure from earth, and he says this in verse 21. He says, for me, to live is Christ. To live is Christ. My life is defined by Christ, and therefore, to die is gain. If I'm to continue to live, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the, between the two. My desire, my longing, is to depart and be with Christ, for that is what? That is far better, Paul says. Longing, that desire for something, for someone, and the ultimate longing being for Jesus Christ, and the fulfillment of our, our longing for him, that, that's the ultimate human longing. What I want to talk about this morning, what our text talks about this morning, is the relationship between longing for God and Jesus Christ and fasting. The relationship between longing for Jesus and going without food. You see, there's nothing uniquely Christian about simply fasting, about going without food. Uh, Jews fast, Muslims fast, uh, the Roman Catholics fast, uh, people who are into alternative medicine fast. In fact, I was on a, a website this week that was talking about fasting, and it said uh, there's an alternative medicine site, and it said that fasting can cure like the hiccups and uh, asthma and allergies and, and some forms of cancer. I mean, it was pretty extensive in its claims. And also, uh, political activists fast, right? A person who's protesting something will, will fast and go without food. You see, there's nothing uniquely Christian about simply abstaining from food. Which is why I think so oftentimes we as Christians misunderstand what the purpose of fasting is. And we are not the only ones who have misunderstood what the purpose of fasting is. Here in Luke chapter 5, verses 33 through 39, 
you're going to see that there are some people that are confronting Jesus regarding his disciples and their lack of fasting who have also missed the point of what fasting is, what its goal is. In fact, if you're just going to kind of get one thing from this morning, you might want to write this down. I believe this. I believe fasting is about, or fasting is an expression of one's longing for Jesus Christ. Fasting is ultimately an expression of one's longing to be reunited with their Redeemer. That's what Jesus' point is going to be in Luke chapter 5, verses 33 through 39. And there's going to be three principles that we glean from this passage on fasting. These are principles that are going to help the people in Jesus' day understand fasting. And they're principles that are going to help you and I understand the purpose of fasting as well. Here's the first principle. We're going to kind of, I'm going to talk through these and then we'll go through them in more depth. The first principle is going to be that hunger is not heartache. Hunger is not heartache, Jesus is going to let us know. That is, simply having a a hungry stomach doesn't mean your heart is yearning for God. As we look at this first principle, we're going to see what fasting is not. The second principle that we're going to look at together this morning is that guests want the groom. Guests want the groom. Here we're going to see what fasting is, and we're going to see that ultimately fasting is an expression of the human heart longing for Jesus Christ. We'll talk more about that momentarily. And then finally, we're going to see that fasters, those who fast, fasters are feasters. (laughs) Ultimately, a person who's engaging in a fast is feasting on their relationship with Jesus. We'll talk more about what that means in a moment as well. There we're going to see why we fast and how God uses a fast in our lives. Well, let's go ahead and dive into the text here and begin here in verse 33 as we look at this first principle that hunger is not heartache. Jesus is there in verse 33. It says, And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And there's a little bit of an accusation there. We're not exactly sure who all is the the they there. Matthew refers, as he tells this story, refers to the disciples of John. Mark talks about some people. Luke just uses the term they there, perhaps referring to some Pharisees as well. Whatever the case, there's a group of people there, probably Certainly the disciples of John were part of this group of people, probably some Pharisees and just some people who were interested in this subject matter. And they come to Jesus and they ask him, look, uh, we're seeing a difference in the way that you and your disciples conduct yourselves compared to the disciples of the Pharisees and the disciples of John. As we look at the disciples of the Pharisees and the disciples of John, we see that there are times in which they're not eating and a person who is very religious perhaps would, would fast as much as twice a week. And as we look at the conduct of the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees, we see that they're living these ascetic lives, these lives of, of great religious uh, uh, ceremony of, 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 as they pray. They're also engaging in these fasts. And as we look at your disciples, you guys aren't doing this. And perhaps there's an honest question here on the, the minds of these people who are, 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 are asking this question. Why is it that your disciples are acting in a way that's different than these other disciples? 
And if we're going to evaluate who's right in their religious understandings and who's right in their teachings, just looking at the externals, we're seeing that the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees seem a little more committed to this thing. What's the deal? And as they draw this contrast, there's this implied accusation. Now what Jesus is going to let them know is that they have failed to rightly understand the purpose of fasting. And if they had been more observant of what Scripture taught them concerning fasting, they would have understood the nature and the purpose of fasting. In fact, let's consider, I'm going to walk through a couple Old Testament passages with you that talk about fasting. And you don't need to turn to all these passages, but you may want to take notes of these texts. First of all, as we look at Old Testament passages, we see that fasting was associated with sorrow and mourning. You could write down 1 Samuel chapter 31 and Nehemiah chapter 1, 1 through 4. 1 Samuel 31, the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead had heard what the Philistines had done to Saul. Saul's been killed. And then it says that in verse 12, some, some valiant men went and they took the body of Saul and the body of his sons and they, they came to Jabesh and they they buried them there. And it says they took their bones and, and bur- or burned them there, and they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh. And it says they, they fasted for seven days. As they mourned the death of Saul, the expression of that mourning, that exp- the expression that the mourning took was, was a, of abstaining from food, of fasting. Nehemiah 1, Nehemiah hears what's going on in Jerusalem. He's told the In verse 3 of Nehemiah chapter 1, he says, The remnant there in the province who have survived the exiles in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Verse 4, it says, As soon as I heard these words, Nehemiah says, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So in the Old Testament, fasting was often a sign of mourning. A person in their heart feels a deep sorrow, a longing for something, and the outward expression of that is fasting. Secondly, in the Old Testament, we see that fasting was often a sign of repentance, often accompanied by repentance. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, we see this. First few verses, the people come to Samuel and they say, look, we recognize that we've sinned. It says the Uh, As they came to Samuel, Samuel says to all the house of Israel in verse 3, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. And the people do that. They put away the idols. And then in verse 5, Samuel says, Come. Gather at Mizpah, I'll pray to the Lord for you. They gather at Mizpah, they drew water, they poured out before the Lord, and they fasted on that day, saying, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. And so sorrow was often a reason for fasting. Fasting was an expression of that sorrow. Fasting was also an expression of repentance. We've, we've done something wrong, and in our hearts it bothers us. We're, we're troubled by it, and we're so troubled that we're abstaining from food as we think about our conduct. That was fasting. Another thing we see about fasting is fasting, number three, was often done in conjunction with requesting something of the Lord. 
2 Samuel chapter 12, remember David's son is in danger of dying. God has told him that this son is going to die. It says in verse 16 that David therefore sought God on behalf of the child and he fasted and he went in and he lay all night on the ground. And so as he's, as he's seeking God, as he's beseeching God, his heart is so intent on, on requesting this of God, he abstains from food. Daniel chapter 9, verse 3, Daniel says, I, I turn my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Fasting is accompanied by mourning, it's often accompanied by repentance, and it's often an expression of, of our, our hearts for God as we request things from him. Fourthly, a fasting is a sign of humility. It's a sign of humility. Ezra chapter 8, Ezra says, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava. Why? That we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. Verse 23, we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. So, a person in the Old Testament would fast, and, and this fasting was an expression of something that was going on within them. They were fasting as a sign of their mourning, as, as accompanied there with repentance, and as they, they sought God for things with a spirit of humility. That was fasting. But fifthly, we see from the Old Testament, last thing here, we also see that sometimes fast, uh, fasting was not acceptable to the Lord. Sometimes a person would engage in not eating, and God would look at that action and not find it acceptable. Look at, or you can uh, write down Isaiah 58, verses 3 through 6. In Isaiah 58, 3-6, the people ask, Why have we fasted and you not see it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? And this is God's response. They say, look, God, we're going without food. Why aren't you kind of picking up on this? Look how, look how, uh, look how hungry we are. This is God's answer to why he doesn't find their fast acceptable. He says, Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is this the fast that I would choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable, acceptable to the Lord? And he talks about the type of fast that the Lord would desire. He says, it's not this the fast that I choose to lose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Here's the point. In the Old Testament, fasts were designed to reflect a heart of humility, of mourning, of longing for God. And something strange had taken place by the time these people are asking Jesus this question. Fasting had gone from an act of humility to an act of pride. Remember Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, don't let your fasts be, be made public 
That is, don't engage in a fast in, in order for other people to look at you and see how godly you are. Remember Luke chapter 18. In Luke chapter 18, the, the Pharisee stands up in the temple and he says, Oh, oh Lord, I, I thank you. Thank you for how righteous I am and, and how much I fast. And he compares himself to the tax collector. A, a fast in the Old Testament was to be a, a sign of one's heart, being humbled before God and saying, God, I'm not worthy for your favor. I'm not worthy to receive your grace. But as I recognize who I am and who you are, I'm beseeching you, have mercy upon me. I, I long for you. I long for your deliverance. I long for your salvation. That was the heart of a fast. It had become twisted and distorted into this act of self-righteousness. Totally missing the entire point of a fast in the first place. The interesting thing about food is that food often does reflect what's in our heart. (laughs) Our response toward food often indicates the condition of our heart. In our family, uh, requests for food are one of the most frequent requests that are made of mom and dad. And oftentimes, they're one of the most uh, frequent causes for contention, strangely enough. Thursday, I was uh, getting some things done, and my two youngest children, I I heard some sort of discussion taking place. and I was in the middle of something. I didn't really have time to deal with it, but okay, I got to figure out what's going on. So I I called my, my four-year-old and my three-year-old and said, said, come on in here. And so they, they came into the room. As I came into the room, I said, okay, guys, what, what's, what's going on? And I couldn't quite understand what the issue was, but it had something to do with cereal. And I said, well, well what, wh- why are you guys fighting about, about cereal? I said, well, uh, the four-year-old said, well, we, we poured, the, the, you know, Ellie, the three-year-old, we poured her a, an extra bowl of cereal, and, and she's not, she's not going to eat it. So well, I don't care. I, she doesn't have to eat it. He goes, well, it's in a plastic bag. I said, I don't know why it's in a plastic bag. I don't care. Uh, just go take the plastic bag and, and put it away. And Ellie says, should, should I throw it away? No, no. Get it off the table. Take it off the table and put it in the pantry. She goes, well, it's not on the table. So where is it? She goes, it's in Austin's bed. <laughs> I said, okay, I don't care. Just take it off of Austin's bed and, and put it in the, in the pantry. She goes, okay. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm done with this. And Later, I'm telling the story to Whitney. I said, I, Whitney, I don't know what happened, but for some reason there was a bag of cereal in Austin's bed, and I, I took care of it. And she goes, looks over at Ellie. She goes, Ellie, why was there food in Austin's bed? And Ellie said, well, I was, I was hiding it from you and Daddy. That way, she could save that burdensome step of asking us for food and just go straight to her stash in Austin's bed, right? <laughs> the way that we handle food often reveals what's in our heart. Ellie has a heart where she wants things when she wants them. She doesn't want to bother with mom and dad, and so she took some food, and she, she hid it in Austin's bed. But the same is true for you and me, right? Uh, some of us love pleasure. We love the, the feeling of, of, of great food on our tongues, and so we, we overconsume and we overindulge, right? And our treatment of food at that moment reveals what's in our heart. But some of us, overindulge, we go to the mirror, we look at ourselves, we see ourselves in pictures, and we think, boy, I I really don't like the way that I look there. I love myself so much, I'm going to abstain from food. (laughs) You see, two different actions, eating, not eating, both motivated by a love of self. 
Some of us abstain from food to a very unhealthy degree. Uh, Various terms are used to describe this, perhaps uh, eating uh, disorders, things like that. And we do these things in order to, to control things. My point is this. The action itself doesn't reveal what's in our heart. What's in our heart determines what action we do. A person can eat, not eat, and both have a heart that's far from God. That's Jesus' understanding here as well. Here in the first century, though, the Jews thought that simply going without food was pleasing to God. And what we see in this first principle is that hunger is not the same as heartache. This is a very important principle for a person to understand as they undergo the spiritual disciplines in their life. A person can read the Bible, a person can pray, a person can be engaged in ministry, a person can give to the church, and if those things don't spring from a heart that has a right understanding of why you do those things, they're worthless. I want you to notice something very interesting about this text. For the legalist, the person that's making, the the group of people that are making this accusation against Jesus, these legalists, even God himself isn't righteous enough for them. They're looking at God himself and saying, your conduct isn't righteous enough for us. It's ridiculous. (laughs) It's an important application for you as you think about the spiritual disciplines God has called you to do. Reading your Bible, praying, giving to the church, and and other uh, ministries, and being involved in ministries in the church. All those things that we engage in, the actions themselves aren't what make us right before God. What makes us right before God is having a heartache for him, a longing for him that flows into our actions. But hunger is not heartache. Let's look at the second principle here. That's what fasting is not. Let's look more positively at what fasting is. Look at verse 34. They've just made this kind of veiled accusation against Jesus. Verse 34, and Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The bridegroom will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. The second principle, then, is that guests want the groom. What is fasting? Fasting is ultimately about our relationship with Jesus Christ, and what we do in our conduct is based upon who Jesus is, and our relationship to Jesus. A Jewish feast was an amazing thing to be a part of. It was a joyful time. It was an amazing celebration. In the book of Revelation, we see the church described as a a bride adorned in all her clothes. And In a Jewish first century Jewish uh, wedding, there would be this this time where the bride and groom were dressed in their fine clothes, and they were kind of like the king and queen of the party. And the, the king and queen of the party would, would, would engage in this marriage celebration. They'd, there'd be this wedding ceremony. And then they would travel to their, their wedding feast. And the wedding feast was an amazing thing to participate in. In fact, turn your Bibles here for just a moment to Matthew chapter 25. Keep your finger in Luke 5. And turn over to Matthew chapter 25. And in Matthew chapter 25, we have the story of the Foolish virgins. Uh, Jesus says the kingdom of of heaven is like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. 
five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. The foolish took their lamps and they took no oil with them. The wise took flasks of oil with the lamp. You know the story. The bridegroom arrives. Verse 7, the virgins rose. They trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, there won't be enough for you and us. Go to the dealers, buy for yourselves. They go out, these five foolish, foolish virgins go out to buy the oil. Verse 10, the bridegroom came. And listen to this. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And you think, well, okay, so the, the, five, the five foolish virgins missed out on a meal. Okay, Yeah, sad, but not that big of a deal, right? No, the wedding feast was not just one meal. It was at least a seven-day extravaganza. Remember in John chapter 2, Jesus is at the wedding in Cana? And what happens? They run out of wine. You think, well, man, they must have gotten really thirsty one hour or something. Just drink it. No, it was a seven-day celebration. It was this extravagant party. In fact, according to Jewish tradition and law, a person could fast at certain times, and there were also some times when a person could not fast, and one of the times that a person could not fast was during a wedding feast. Why not? A wedding feast was a time of joy and celebration, and to arrive at a wedding feast and have the, the groom there and the bride there and them celebrating, and you say, I'm not hungry. I'm actually, uh, I'm actually fasting right now. I'm mourning. is an insult to them. Because the, if you're a friend of the groom, you're so excited about this, this new life and, and this, this new relationship that you're engaged in the, the fasting and the eating, or the, the eating and the celebration of this new marriage. The friend of a bridegroom wouldn't even consider fasting during a wedding feast. Jesus says, therefore, you can't make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them. It would be absurd. It would be the height of, of insult. Yet, he says, a day is coming when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. As one commentator says, Jesus paints a very grim picture here. There's a bridegroom in the midst of his wedding celebration. He's whisked away. And at that moment... The guests fast because they're mourning and longing for him to return. Here's the point. Guests want the groom. What is a fast? A fast is all about Jesus Christ and where Jesus is determines how we respond. When Jesus is there with us, there's no cause for fasting. He's the purpose of a fast. When Jesus is removed, there's a desire, a longing for him. Be like this. It'd be like if I came home one night, and it was date night. And I'm excited about taking my wife out on a date. We are going to go to a restaurant, and we are going to, to, to eat a lot, have fun. I come home, and I say, Whitney, are you ready for date night? And I look at her, and, and she's very obviously ill. She's running a fever, not feeling very well. She says, Daniel, I am 
so sick, there's, there's no way that I'm going to be able to go out tonight. And I say, well, I guess I'll just have to have a, a date without you. Have fun. Re- reservations are at 7. I'll try to be back early. That'd be ludicrous, right? Why? The purpose of the date was not to eat the food. The purpose of the date was to spend time with my wife. And what she is uh, physically able to do depends on how I respond. What do I do now? Now I forget about the restaurant. Now my focus is on her and getting her better. Hey, you, I'm going to go upstairs. I'm going to start a bath. You, you go get in the bath. I'm going to watch the kids, keep them quiet. Then I'm going to bring up a movie for you, and you just kind of sit there and, and, and watch a movie while I take care of everything else here tonight, right? Fasting is about Jesus Christ. It's not about food. And the way that we respond in our spiritual lives is, is based upon a relationship, not a set of rules and regulations. Spiritual disciplines like praying, like reading our Bibles, doing ministry, fasting. All of those things are expressions of a relationship with Jesus. So we must be very careful to not confuse rules with relationship. Because it's part of a relationship how we engage in those disciplines sometimes changes upon the circumstances we find ourselves in. So for example, if I say my desire is to to read my Bible from, say, 6 to to 6.30 in the morning, that's my Bible study time. My child comes in at 6.10 and says, Daddy, I was sleeping, I woke up, and I I want to talk to you about how I can have a relationship with Jesus. I don't say, mm, this is daddy's quiet time. 6 to 6.30 every morning, you need to leave. What do I do? I understand that my reading the Bible is about my relationship with Jesus. And I want to convey to my child that's asking those questions about Jesus. And so Jesus is calling me to do something else during that moment of time. We must be very careful to understand what the ultimate purpose of all spiritual disciplines is. It's to honor and glorify Jesus Christ. And so what is fasting? Fasting is an expression of our longing for Jesus. And when Jesus was there in the midst of the people, it wasn't an appropriate time to long for him because there he was. And yet, he says, verse 35, there is a future day, a day coming, when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. And I believe that those days that he's referring to are right now. But that brings us to our last principle. And that's this, that fasters are feasters. Those who are fasting are actually also simultaneously engaging in a feast because even though it's true that the bridegroom has been removed from our midst, there's been a fundamental change in the way that we go about abstaining from food. Look at what he says. He says this. 
tells this parable. He says, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the, the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. So if you have this tear in your garment and it's an old garment, you don't go out, buy a new shirt, rip a big hole in it and put it over the old garment. First of all, now you've got a new garment with a big hole in it <laughs> and the old garment hasn't been properly fixed anyway. You don't take new wine and put it into old wineskins. Otherwise, when the wine expands, it's going to, to burst these, these wineskins that have already been expanded to their, their breaking point. And furthermore, or therefore, you put them into new wineskins. Here's what I believe Jesus is saying based upon Luke and what he says here, Luke, in the book of Acts as well. Luke is saying that Jesus' ministry represents a, a fundamental shift or a fundamental newness in, in how God is carrying out his plans in comparison with Judaism. Luke is going to tell us, for example, in the Gospel of Acts, that, that Judaism, what it's become, is now simply a cultural phenomenon. He's not saying that the Old Testament and God's word was, was ever wrong or that it's, that it's been superseded, but now that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And therefore, as Jesus is the fulfillment of the New Testament, those, that old structure, Judaism, is now a cultural phenomenon. That's why this, this question is going to be asked throughout the book of Acts. Uh, must a person become a Jew in order to become a Christian? And Luke is going to answer emphatically, the early church is going to answer emphatically, no way! Therefore, the way that we do things, have done things, changes in regards to its purpose and its expression. Therefore, fasting changes in a very interesting way as well. Here's what I believe. I believe that fasting is still an expression of longing, but it's not a longing for something that we've never experienced. Those of us who have become a Christian, those of us who have recognized our need for a Savior and placed our faith in Jesus Christ, have experienced God. We've come into relationship with Jesus. And now, as we engage in fasting, what we are doing is expressing our desire for the fulfillment of our relationship with Jesus. Let me read a quote from John Piper that I think expresses this very well. Piper says this, and, and by the way, as... as let me, let me say one more thing. Because fasting is an expression of our longing for Jesus Christ, that also explains, I believe, why God responds sometime, sometimes to a fast. What we're saying at that moment that we engage in a fast is, God, I, I have loved the things of this world. I've loved food. I've loved all sorts of things, and, and now I, I want to deprive myself of those things so I can focus on you alone. And as I feel sometimes those, those hunger pains beginning, God caused me to not desire those things, but to have that, uh, an even greater desire for you. Right now, I want food. My body is telling me that I want food, but Father, my soul is telling me 
even more, I want you. And that is why I believe that God responds to fasting. Now let me read you that quote from John Piper. He says this, Fasting is peculiarly suited to glorify God. It is fundamentally an offering of emptiness to God in hope. It is a sacrifice of need and hunger. It says by its nature, Father, I am empty, but you are full. I am hungry, but you are the bread of heaven. I am thirsty, but you are the fountain of life. I am weak, but you are strong. I am poor, but you are rich. I am foolish, but you are wise. I am broken, but you are whole. I am dying, but your steadfast love is better than life. And Piper goes on, when God sees this confession of need, this expression of trust, he acts because the glory of his all-sufficient grace is at stake. The final answer is that God rewards fasting because fasting expresses the cry of the heart that nothing on earth can satisfy our soul but God himself. You see that? Hunger is not the same as heartache. Guests want the groom. We desire Jesus. And now, fasters or feasters, as we're abstaining from food, we're feasting on the joy of having Jesus Christ. Let me give you two points of application here, and then we'll close. First point of application, or two areas of application, is, uh, is uh, first of all, some areas or some times in which you might find a fast, a time of abstaining from food, useful. Perhaps there's a time whenever you're entangled in some sin. It's a besetting sin, and it seems that, that God is, is creating within you a, a desire to rid yourself of this sin, to remove this entanglement in your life. And a time of fasting can help you focus your, your heart in this area and say, God, I've, I've been in love with this thing I want to reject that, and I want to renew my focus and my passion for you. And so as I pursue holiness, God, uh, I'm going to engage in this time of fasting so I can learn to have my soul long for you the way my body longs for food. Or maybe there's a time in your life where you need God's direction. You say, God, it's going to be a time where I'm coming to your word and trying to find out how you desire me to live, and so I'm going to engage in this fast in this time so I can, I can learn to, to love you more as I make this decision. And seek your guidance and your word. Maybe there's a, a person in your life that you want to, to, to know Jesus. You want this person to place their trust in Jesus Christ alone. And so you're going to engage in this, this time of fasting. Abstaining from food. Pursuing God. So that God will be glorified in this area. And that's the root of it, right? As we engage, engage in a fast, we're saying, God, I desire you to be glorified in this area. I want you and your glory more than anything else. Second area of application are just some principles for fasting, how I would encourage you if God lays this on your heart, how I would suggest you go about a period of fasting. One is just to begin with a proper attitude toward food. Uh, food is not evil. Food is not inherently good. Food is food. Oftentimes we think of food as, as evil, and it's important as we have a proper attitude to not see food as evil. Secondly, understand your primary and secondary purposes as you're engaged in this fast. Your, your primary purpose is the glory of God, a longing for Jesus, and that's your, your primary focus in a time of fasting. And then it's, it's sometimes helpful to have that secondary purpose as well. God, I, I desire your glory first and foremost, and, and secondarily, I want to see your glory manifested in this area. And that's going to be the content of my prayers as I 
I pray during this time. I'd encourage you to consider how long a fast can be. It may not even be a fast from food. There could be, there's times of other things that have drawn our lives and people fast from those as well, television or sometimes uh, activities. Also, uh, along with that, I encourage some people uh, physically need to talk to a, a doctor before they engage in, in fasting. That's an important thing to consider as well. Another thing is whether or not to include others in your time of fasting. I've mentioned before Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus talks about your fasting being done in secret. I, I, don't, mean, I don't think that means that other people can't be involved in your fast. Uh, the book of Acts talks about the church fasting as a whole. What I believe Jesus is talking against is that desire to, be, to publicly proclaim your own self-righteousness through a fast. And then I just encourage you as you fast to incorporate a time of prayer. And as those hunger pains or whatever it is that you're abstaining from uh, begin to, to, to be brought to your mind, that you would turn those things to God and his glory and your desire for him to consume your life. Hunger is not heartache. Simply going without food does not mean that we're having a fast that honors God. Ultimately, guests want the groom. But we desire Jesus Christ above all else. Fasters or feasters, we're longing and participating in the great joy as we think about Jesus Christ. It's said that we don't know for sure who wrote the Odyssey. One wit has said that it, if it wasn't Homer who wrote the Odyssey, it was a man named Homer some other man named Homer. In other words, we know nothing about his life. It could have been a man, it could have been a woman. No one knows exactly who wrote the Odyssey, but here's the point. It could have been anyone because we've all experienced that longing, that desire for home. The Christian, though, has a unique longing. The longing for Jesus Christ. The longing that says to, to live is, is, is gain and, and to die is to, to be with Christ and it's all good and light of our relationship with him my encouragement to you is to ask God to give you that burning passion for Jesus to long for him to experience that ultimate longing of the human heart and to have that longing for Jesus fill all other areas of your life let's pray Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus, and we thank you for the opportunity that we have to have a relationship with you through him. Father, our desire is to see him and his glory manifested in all areas of our life. Do that by your grace and for your glory, we pray. Amen.